This is History West Midlands. Beatrice Cadbury, daughter of one of the founders of the world-famous chocolate dynasty, was born into a world of Victorian privilege. During her childhood, she enjoyed the home life, education and social status that wealth purchased. But her conscience was increasingly troubled by the thought of living off the efforts of workers in the iconic Bourneville factory. The solution seemed obvious, give her shares to the workers. But as author Fiona Joseph reveals in her biography of Beatrice, it was not going to be that simple. In 1920, Beatrice Cadbury Booker, the wealthy daughter of the famous Cadbury Chocolate Empire, wrote a heartfelt letter to her oldest brother, Barrow Cadbury, one of the directors at the Bourneville Works. Beatrice had been grappling with a matter of conscience for many months, and she needed Barrow's help. In language typical of her strongly held Quaker beliefs, she wrote, Dear Barrow, I do not expect that thou wilt be very much surprised at receiving this, as thou know the whole question has been in my mind for a long time now. I have felt increasing difficulty at receiving year by year the income from my Bourneville shares, as I did nothing to earn this money, and it only came to me through inheritance. By this time, Beatrice Cadbury was an immensely rich woman, yet her conscience was deeply troubled. She had come to believe that in the holding of vast private capital lay the root of nearly all of the world's social and economic problems. This capitalist daughter could no longer accept her privileged position. She told her brother of her plan to give all her inherited shares in the company to their rightful owners, the Bourneville workers, for they were the people whose labour had generated the wealth. But her scheme, though noble and well-intended, proved more complicated than she had anticipated. And this decision put her at odds, not only with her family, but also with the Bourneville workers. In 1922, the New York Times reported, Workers at the Cadbury Brothers Chocolate Factory at Bourneville are seriously perturbed over the action of Mrs. Bucca, daughter of one of the firm's founders, in voluntarily surrendering the 2,800 shares which she holds in the company and transferring them to a trust for the benefit of the workers collectively. So, who was this wealthy heiress who was so determined to rid herself of such a great fortune? When Beatrice's father, Richard, and his brother, George, formed the Cadbury Brothers Partnership, their Quaker faith was at the heart of the way they ran their business. In 1879, they built the Bourneville Works within the leafy outskirts of Birmingham. The chocolate company became known as the Factory in a Garden because of its lush green setting. Here was a place where profit went hand in hand with a caring and philanthropic regard for the workers. It was a philosophy that became the gold standard for fair, decent and ethical business practice. As a journalist from the Midland Echo newspaper, visiting the factory in 1884, remarked, Although undoubtedly keen businessmen, these men regard those in their employ not as part of the machinery, but as human beings, for whose well-being they are in large measure responsible. The business model, which could be termed Quaker capitalism, proved highly successful. 
Within four years, their turnover had doubled and the company was immensely profitable. On the 28th of April, 1884, five years after the Bourneville Works was opened, Beatrice Cabri was born to her doting parents, Emma Jane and Richard Cabri. Known as Little B, she was the youngest of eight children. Her siblings included Barrow Cabri, known as Big B, and William Cabri, both of whom later joined the family firm as directors. Their home was at Moseley Hall, an old and rambling mansion in the Moseley district of Birmingham, where Beatrice grew up with all the privileges that money could buy. But the ever-present influence of Quakerism ensured there was no danger of her becoming an its girl or a spoiled high-society heiress. Beatrice's education was forward-thinking and began at the Frobel Kindergarten in Harborn, the first of its kind in Britain, famed for its child-centred approach and an emphasis on learning through play. Meanwhile, at home, she was surrounded by pets, including a cockatoo, two dogs and a Shetland pony of her own. This intense love of animals meant she refused to eat meat from an early age. Her mother, Emma Jane, was unconventional. She was a proponent of homeopathy, cold daily baths and outdoor living. The house also included the screaming room, where Beatrice and her sisters could let off steam. When Beatrice was seven years old, Richard Cabri fulfilled his ambition to design and build a new family home. He donated Mosley Hall to the City Council for a convalescent home and found land in sought-after Moor Green. The new build, adjacent to the Chamberlains at Highbury, was named Uffcombe, after the family's ancestral connections with Devon. The house included a stunning double-height conservatory, inside which there were tall palm trees and a fish pond. The walls were decorated lavishly with artefacts from Richard's travels. Here, Beatrice grew up in an atmosphere of love and Christian duty. She recalled, The whole family gathered in the hall at 7.30 for reading. Father read a passage from the Bible, which was followed by a prayer, committing the whole household to God's care and guidance during the coming day. Directly after breakfast, Father left for the works, walking down Dogpool Lane to Dogpool, where he met the Bourneville post van and rode on with the morning's post to his office. Richard Cabri supported the Gospel Temperance Mission, which regarded alcohol as evil, and frivolity in general was discouraged in the Cabri household. Beatrice was not allowed to take part in or even attend school plays, as acting was considered to have an air of licentiousness about it. In addition, Beatrice and her sisters were expected to take part in the good works carried out by their parents, and this gave Beatrice a keen awareness of the poverty and deprivation in Birmingham. She attended the mothers' meetings in Highgate with Emma Jane. She regularly picked bluebells from the fields to distribute to Birmingham's poor, and every December she helped to make Christmas puddings for families in need. Meanwhile, when Richard brought coachloads of deprived children from the slums of Birmingham to picnic at Uffcombe, Beatrice was expected to serve them with cocoa and a bun, and to donate some of her toys as gifts. At her secondary school, the prestigious Edgbaston High School for Girls, Beatrice was a bright and diligent pupil who received glowing school reports for French and scripture, and she was also a gifted violinist. 
Her father, Richard, loved to travel. He had a particular fascination with the Middle East and saw himself as a scholar of Egyptology. In early 1899, when he planned a holiday to Egypt and Jerusalem for all the family, Beatrice's head teacher was not at all impressed with Mr and Mrs Cadbury for committing that parental offence of taking Beatrice on holiday during term time. However, for Beatrice, this was real-life experiential learning, crawling on her stomach through the hot, dusty passages of the Great Pyramids to see the sarcophagus at the centre, rather than learning about the pyramids from some boring old textbook. But this golden period for the family was about to come to a tragic end. Whilst in Egypt, Richard developed a sore throat. It appeared to be a bug picked up from the River Nile, but by the time they reached Jerusalem, it was clear he was seriously ill. He had, in fact, contracted diphtheria, which proved fatal. Richard Cadbury's sudden death at the age of 63 tore the family apart with grief. Life without the devoted husband and father was tough for everyone, especially Beatrice. Richard's death also ended the famed Cadbury Brothers partnership. Now the business needed to be restructured. It became a private limited company and shares were issued to all of the family members on both Richard and George Cadbury's side. For Beatrice, this was a time of change. She left Moseley for the Quaker boarding school in York, the Mount, and then became a student at the women-only Westfield College in London, where she thoroughly enjoyed university life. She was surrounded by intelligent, empowered women who served as role models. And in her spare time, she attended political lectures dealing with social problems. In 1907, Beatrice, her studies now over, returned to Ufcombe to be a dutiful daughter and companion to her mother, Emma Jane. Beatrice and Emma Jane decided to take a trip to China. However, on board a cruise ship returning home, tragedy struck Emma Jane. As Beatrice's sister, Helen, described, During a severe storm, A sudden lurch of the ship caused her to miss her footing while ascending a steep gangway to the writing saloon, and she was hurled to the foot of the stairway. The fall caused concussion of the brain, and she passed away that same night without recovering consciousness. By now, Beatrice had become a rich heiress. With her brothers and sisters, she had inherited great wealth in the form of shares in the Cadbury Company. This brought her in a yearly dividend equivalent to around £400,000 in today's money. Beatrice spent the three years following her mother's death travelling the world with her sister Helen, who was on tour with her American missionary husband, the famous evangelist, gospel singer and preacher Charles Alexander. And then in 1910, Beatrice's life was transformed. She fell in love with Cornelius Booker, known as Case. By this time, Beatrice had returned to Birmingham and she was invited to serve on the recruitment panel for the Friends Foreign Mission Association, a London-based Quaker missionary organisation. The committee wanted to recruit a head teacher for a boys' school in Brumana, in Syria. The first time Beatrice set eyes on Dutchman Case Booker, the man who would later become her husband, was when he arrived to be interviewed for the post. In walked a tall, handsome man with piercing blue eyes. His smile was warm, without guile, and utterly disarming. For Beatrice, the attraction was instantaneous. 
She later described her feelings to their children. Something shot right across to me the first time this young Dutchman had an interview with the Syria committee, although I am sure he was unaware of the lasting impression he made. Case Booker almost failed the interview when he admitted he was not a teetotaler, this being a key requirement for a Quaker organisation. But in all other respects, he impressed the recruitment panel and was subsequently appointed to work in Syria. But first, however, he was required to complete a year's missionary training at Kingsmead College in Birmingham. Unsurprisingly, Beatrice decided she would start a study group at the college, to which she invited Case. Over the next few months, their romance blossomed, and in July 1911, they announced their surprise engagement to the family. Beatrice later told her children, Daddy and I took the family by storm. The time was short for them to get to know him because he was due to go to Syria in two months' time. In December 1911, Beatrice and Case were married at the Friends Meeting House in Bull Street in Birmingham. The following year, the newly married couple began life in Syria. Beatrice adored Syria. She loved the people, the food, the simplicity of the back-to-basics lifestyle. She had a sense of purpose at last. She also gave birth to her first child, whom they named Helen. But by early 1914, there were worrying reports of escalating tensions in Europe and the Balkans, which culminated in the outbreak of the First World War that summer, with Britain declaring war on Germany following its invasion of Belgium. When Turkey joined the war as German allies, all British citizens were advised to leave Syria. So Beatrice, Case and their baby daughter were forced to return to England, where they stayed with her sister Helen in Birmingham. The outbreak of war brought Beatrice Cadbury's pacifist beliefs into sharp focus. As a Quaker, she held firmly to the peace testimony, which promoted a commitment to peace, opposition to war and challenge to the right of governments to make citizens bear arms. Along with many other Quakers, Beatrice and Case became members of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, a movement seeking to bring together Christians of all denominations to radically oppose the war. They organised meetings, non-violent street protests and assisted young men through the painful process of registering as conscientious objectors. This absolutist stance against the war made Beatrice and Case deeply unpopular and caused conflict with the authorities throughout the war. In 1915, Case got a foretaste of how out of step they were with popular opinion when he was appointed to teach at a private boys' school. During his Bible study classes, he pointed to passages which said that war was wrong and that it was against the teachings of Scripture. He told the boys of Jesus' command to love one's enemy and to do good to those that hate you. Soon, a deputation of angry parents arrived at the school, demanding Case's dismissal. Beatrice and Case also began to speak openly and publicly against the war. They took their pacifist message to the streets of Birmingham, including Victoria Square, where their placards pleaded for no more war and no conscription. Every Saturday, the couple distributed leaflets outside local munitions factories, and made impassioned speeches bearing witness against war. Unsurprisingly, the authorities were severely irritated by this inflammatory message, 
And yet, Beatrice and Case escaped punishment for much of the war, even after conscription was introduced in 1916. The local press, however, was simmering with rage. An article in the Birmingham Daily Mail asked, How is it that this young Dutchman is left free to undermine military authority and public morale? We answer this question by publishing a certificate of his marriage. The implication was that Case was protected by being married into one of Birmingham's most respected and influential business families, the Cadburys. Finally, in February 1918, Case was arrested and charged with offences under the newly introduced Defence of the Realm Act. Giving evidence against Case Booker, a policeman testified that he had heard the Dutchman utter three statements. One, man was not made to kill man. Two, the Germans are our brothers. And three, the quickest way to end the war is for the soldiers to lay down their arms and refuse to fight. Beatrice took to the stand to robustly defend her husband, but Case was found guilty and sentenced to six weeks in Winston Green Prison and then transferred to Wormwood Scrubs for deportation to Holland. Case's expulsion from Britain provoked a crisis for Beatrice. She had to decide whether to remain in Birmingham with their four young daughters, now aged five, three, two and six months, or whether to try and get to Holland. She boldly decided to join her husband. After a perilous channel crossing on board a convoy ship, Beatrice and the children were reunited with Case. They settled in Biltoven, near Utrecht. The war finally ended in November 1918, but Beatrice and Case continued their work and peace activism. It was here, at their family home in Biltoven, that they organised the first meeting of the International Fellowship of Reconciliation in 1919. The costs for the conference were underwritten by Beatrice out of the dividends from her Cadbury shares. 35 delegates from 10 countries met in a spirit of hope and optimism. All the major Christian socialists and pacifists of the time were there. Henry Hodgkin from America, Friedrich Siegmund Schultz from Germany, Mathilde Reed from Finland and Pierre Serisole from Switzerland. At their meetings, they earnestly discussed the causes of conflict and renewed their commitment to work together to rebuild society in order to avoid repeating the horrors of the Great War. Beatrice also funded the construction of an international conference centre next to their home. This Brotherhood Centre gave birth to a number of peace movements. Despite all this work, financed by her inheritance, Beatrice was facing a crisis of conscience about her wealth. She wrote, The Great War and its appalling consequences have led me to believe that the private holding of capital, such as we have done up to the present time, lies at the root of nearly all the social and economic trouble in the world today. Her thinking was evolving. While in 1914 her objection to the war had been framed primarily in religious terms, by 1920 she was increasingly influenced by Christian socialist and Marxist thinking that war was just a symptom of all that was wrong with capitalism. This philosophy stated that the holding of excessive capital by the few caused acute suffering and inequality for the many. And yet, here she was, 
the daughter of a capitalist, inextricably bound up within the capitalist system. No longer able to tolerate this contradiction, Beatrice came to a bold plan to use her inherited wealth to fundamentally change the capitalist structure of business for the better and to bring about a new world order. She announced she would relinquish all of her shares in Cadbury's and proposed that the Bourneville workers should decide collectively how the wealth that they were producing should be used for the good of the community. In a heartfelt letter to the workers, she explained, As a shareholder in Cadbury Brothers Limited, and as one who, as such, has for many years received a part of the wealth produced by your collective labour, I feel compelled to address this letter to you. I first want to thank you for the many privileges that the unearned income resulting from your united work has enabled me to enjoy. I have felt increasingly uncomfortable as I have thought about this condition of affairs. We therefore now feel it to be our duty, voluntarily, to surrender the privilege we have enjoyed for such a long time. She proposed what would now be considered a common ownership or common trusteeship scheme, whereby income from the shares would be administered by a committee of Bourneville workers and used for philanthropic purposes, such as combating starvation and disease, building better housing, relief of poverty, educational programmes, controlling industry, supporting peace movements and enhancing working class unity. Back in Birmingham, this decision caused consternation. Immediately, her eldest brothers, Barrow and William, who were now running the family company, asked her to come home to discuss the radical plan. In October 1920, Beatrice met with her brothers and cousins, who tried to dissuade her, arguing that there were practical and ideological objections to her scheme. The first was a legal issue. Beatrice's shares could not be given away. The law prevented shares being given to non-family members. Furthermore, her brothers were offended by the implication that they were ruthless capitalists. As William Cadbury pointed out, Bourneville was not simply a money-making machine. The reaction of the Bourneville workers was surprising. Tom Hackett, one of the foremen and head of the Men's Works Council, wrote to Beatrice on behalf of the workers. He thanked her for her generous offer and said that, although he was a socialist and sympathetic to her ideals, he believed that fewer than 5-10% to 10% of the workforce actually shared her ideals about shared ownership and employee participation in management matters. But Beatrice was not to be deflected from her plan. She was determined to overcome objections, both from her family and the employees. She corresponded with the workers for about two years, until negotiations had reached a stalemate. Then Beatrice played her trump card. In April 1922, she wrote to the employees, saying she was making the offer of the shares for the final time, and if they really felt they could not accept then she would find a way to use the dividends to set up a local community collective in Holland. Immediately, this triggered a change of heart. One of the workers, Mr W. Beard, declared he would rather see the money in the hands of his fellow Bourneville workers than in those of Dutch visionaries. Soon after, Barrow Cadbury, now company chairman, wrote to accept the offer. Beatrice had won. Later that year... Two worker representatives, 
Tom Hackett and Kathleen Cox travelled to Bilthoven to be part of the official signing of the Booker Trust, which gave the ownership of the shares to the Bourneville workers. Still, however, there was concern at Beatrice's astonishing decision. In 1922, the New York Times reported, The Bourneville employees believe that in doing this, Mrs. Bucker has impoverished herself and jeopardised the education of her children. The men and women at the Bourneville factory, in accepting the gift, expressed their appreciation of Mrs. Bucker's self-sacrifice, but they would desire to devote some of the dividends on the shares to the care and interest of the Bucker family, such as the education of the children. However, for decades afterwards, the Booker Trust Committee met regularly, with the funds being administered by a committee of employees. The funds benefited the Cadbury workers with the dental scheme, a cervical screening service for women, the Bourneville Pensioners Club, as well as supporting many charitable groups and good causes in the local community and worldwide. Beatrice's legacy was felt in other arenas. She continued to be a peace activist throughout her life and groups she established during the 1920s at her Dutch home, the International Fellowship of Reconciliation and War Resisters International, are still active today. Beatrice and Kays went on to set up a home school based on pacifist principles in 1926, called the Children's Community Workshop, which became a model for progressive schooling throughout the world. During the 1940s, when the Nazis occupied Holland, Beatrice sheltered Jewish children in the school, and along with Case, her name is memorialised on the Righteous Among the Nations Wall of Honour at the Yad Vashem Museum in Jerusalem. Nor did age dim Beatrice's desire for peace and social justice. In 1969, aged 85, she joined the protests against the American war in Vietnam. Beatrice died in Holland in 1976 at the age of 91. Tributes poured in from around the world to a wonderful woman whose love of humanity always shone through in her words and, more importantly, her actions. I found Beatrice Cadbury's story so inspiring that I was compelled to write my book about her life. Beatrice, the Cadbury heiress who gave away her fortune. I admired the fact that she never wavered in her decision to live by her highest ideals, even if it meant sacrificing her personal wealth to build a fairer and more equal society. She was a woman of great character and courage, whose consistency of belief and lifelong commitment to peace is really quite remarkable. Fiona Joseph's biography, Beatrice the Cabrieras Who Gave Away Her Fortune, is published by Foxwell Press and is available from Amazon and other stores. <laughs>